This is the Deep Color podcast series. Deep Color is an oral history project where I talk with artists about their work and their lives. The ultimate goal here is to give listeners a better understanding about the experiences and people behind the artwork. My name is Joseph Hart. I produce and facilitate this series. These recordings are casual, straight on, and unscripted. This episode profiles Elias Hansen. Eli makes sculpture and installation-based works that incorporate hand-blown glass, metal and wood support structures, tinted light bulbs, electrical components, and other objects. Recent sculptures resemble elaborate chandeliers that reach from ceiling to floor, or rustic wooden thrones embellished with glass ornaments and black lights. Other installations suggest subterranean chemistry lab tableaus and feature an arrangement of glass vessels, plastic tubing, and unknown liquids. The work honors craftsmanship and curiosity and nudges the viewer to consider what's been found, what's been mass-produced, and what's been made by hand. We recorded this conversation at his studio in Incremdale, New York, which is about two hours north of New York City. Um, and that activates into like almost like a drawing yeah, for me, like yeah. a line work. And totally. In the pictures of your stuff that I've seen installed in galleries, that seems like an important yeah, part of it. Especially with the shadows as well, mm-hmm. and it become part of... Yeah, the shadow play as well. Yeah. That's something my, when I was showing your work to my wife last night, she's like, yeah, it looks like he cares yeah. about shadows. I was like, totally. Totally. I, I often turn off all the fluorescent lights because fluorescent lights don't really do a good shadow um, in the on a wall. So I, I really like to spot things, not too dramatically, but to the point where it's just one or maybe two lights mm-hmm. that you get this great shadow play, get yeah. these drawings on the wall from the cords. Right. And some of the things I think about when I look at, is that a finished work right there or close to finished? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I think about assemblage and, and arrangement um, and like almost like, like how a museum designer might think about displaying the things in a vitrine. The space between objects seems mm-hmm. um, important in a way. Uh, even the hierarchy of our objects, what's in the middle versus what's on the side, what's up high, what's low. Um, trans- yeah. Transparency and light and how the, the colored glass is operating. Yeah, I've been kind of puzzling with how to describe it in a more deep way. Like I have, I have easy ways to describe it, but to, to talk about it more deeply... Oscar Twazant, my brother Oscar, has he kind of described it as like a, I'm a still life sculptor, um, which I think was kind of really interesting that it is they are really still lives, but they're in three dimension and it's you know similar to kind of still life painting where things are very arranged and the spatial relationship is really important. Uh, my friend Olivier Rankin came up the other day and said I, I think assemblage is inaccurate to describe it okay um which i which just blew my mind um because he, that's a word that gets thrown around yeah it just mm-hmm. that seemed that frequently like, for you? i'm assembling things so obviously it's assemblage but he thought he's like it's definitely it's collage because i think assemblage somehow references using all found material ready-made okay and so i'm kind of trying to process it. i don't really understand it yet um, but I think that there's somewhere in there between still life sculptor and collage assemblage. Okay. Because it is, it's about, a lot of it is about using handmade objects, things that I made either for that specific piece or, you know, for intentionally making an object to somehow incorporate into a larger sculpture. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, 
that it's different than just kind of, um, you know, all found objects, obviously. Right. So yeah, you're blowing some of these. It's yeah. Found o- it's a mix of found objects and things you're actually making. Yeah. And then, uh-huh. and I guess the, uh, trying to hide the handmade stuff inside of the found thing. So it becomes the hierarchy of objects is kind of leveled or right. it, they, they interact in the same way. Where it's these, fluid from where one these, thing to the next. Yeah. These yeah. kind of these $5 light bulbs are, you know, on the same pedestal as this, you know, handmade, you know, Venetian style glass. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that I, I can't help but go to when looking at your, um, some of your sculptures, particularly the tableaus that have beakers and tubing and flasks, this sort of like DIY chemistry lab mm-hmm. um, setup, yeah. which sort of suggests to me, you know, the 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 production of something illicit in someone's basement or a garage. Yeah. I'm thinking of like drug production or even an alcohol still. Um, yeah. And I'm wondering, is that a misread on my part, or is <laughs> no, that no. That's, that's 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 part of it? Yeah, that's, that's super accurate. Okay. Um, probably basement rather than garage. Okay. Um, but it was a lot of the things the original kind of scientific forms it started with the separatory funnel um i had a friend with a lab um that needed a really large separatory funnel and to buy a separatory funnel would potentially raise red flags with the manufacturer that who's this guy that's just buying really big glass right and he's not a he's not an ed, uh, it's, uh, an academic it's institution. not academic yeah. it's not a it's not a known lab are there, just, are there people that like keep an eye on that there must be yeah i right. think and and it's also it's tough to know who's watching because right. you can't really ask them right and there's all sorts of things that raise flags there's like uh remote con- the gas that you use for remote control cars mm-hmm. is like a really great solvent so it's often used if somebody's buying a bunch of gas for remote control cars but they're not racing remote control cars that's a red flag mm-hmm. uh, most essential oils almond oil sassafras oil a lot of these oils people have figured out ways to make usually it's it's mdma Mm -hmm. um that's kind of the the easy ones to make like meth like you can just make with pseudofed there's really easy ways to make it and it's kind of dime a dozen Mm -hmm. but people making the more lucrative drugs like mdma it's a little trickier to make Mm -hmm. and they have it's a more complex process Mm -hmm. um and they're usually a little more paranoid. I feel like the meth cookers are always a little more like full of themselves and think they can get away with it. Right. Where the like the smart cooks, you know, to make MDMA is a really difficult process. And so that I think took, you know, it takes smart people to do that. Have and you ever made stuff like that? I was, I helped a friend with a lab. Okay. Um, and that was where I started making the big separatory funnels. And then the Erlenmeyer shape, the boiling flask, he needed these big things. And mm-hmm. so uh, I was making this glass for him. And then in the process of making the glass for him, I would end up with a lot of extra things. Sure. You know, things that he so didn't need. So it started need. off as totally making util- totally a thing utilitarian. that's yeah. functioning yeah. for and its then, intended purpose. And then we started, and then we were living together Mm-hmm. And I was kind of the front in the house where I was the artist that lived in the house and uh-huh. I was kind of zany. And then he was hiding out in the basement cooking the whole okay. time. And uh, so you had all this extra stuff that all this didn't extra quite glass. Work. And then we started making 
a brew like homebrew out of it mm-hmm. and we were making it was kind of this like hilarious like it was conceptual homebrew okay <laughs> where i was getting canned peaches from this like dollar store on the top of the hill in tacoma and so i'd get this like dirt cheap peaches and big bags of sugar and then take them home and make this kind of like really terrible peach champagne uh-huh. um which i think i actually have some i still have some in those bottles there the the brown bottles the uh-huh. super juice and fitch and ramos and you, um, you went so far as to make a label it looks like yeah we we it's I, legit. yeah it's totally <laughs> legit you know we talked to whole foods and they didn't they, they weren't biting but yeah. i think we could get an account i yeah. think we could do this yeah uh, so we were making these things and so i had all these vessels like bubbling over and you know would make the the air lock systems for those and then we started distilling with that and we made some like, you know, kind of condensing stills, mm-hmm. which essentially all of this equipment, it's like really basic. Like you're either separating kind of mechanically with a separatory funnel where you have like the separation of oil and water. Mm-hmm. So you, you take one out from underneath with a separatory funnel. And then with the, you know, a boiling flask, you, you know, on a condensing unit, you boil in the boiling flask and you separate things by boiling temperature, mm-hmm. which are like, those two processes really cover a really wide breadth of things that you might do in a lab. Um, So we had this stuff and then we started making these like really powerful homebrews. And then my friend Joey and I actually had a show in Tacoma in 2007. The show was called truth. We forgot to lie about that was kind of creating this fantastical story that in a lot of ways was us creating a story that was a cover for the lab. Okay. Uh, And so we actually, in preparation for the show got a bunch of the equipment out of the lab into the gallery and then got everything else out of the lab. Cause we got really paranoid when we got up to the show that actually somebody was going to notice and mm-hmm. you know, which was silly, but right. we were paranoid. Right. So, um, it was, and it was a great way to kind of a great drive coming up to a show because there's so much when you have come up to a show of like excitement and like mm-hmm. nervousness and to, have that coupled with paranoia right. was really like, was really awesome because yeah. there was like this real fear that our lives were going to really like, you know, usually when you come to a show, there's the excitement that maybe you'll sell some work, uh-huh. but then also like to come up to a show and have, or you might go to jail yeah. a whole other layer was really exciting. Like yeah. made it like really powerful. And we had a, um, a, like a workout bench, like a weightlifting bench and like the, you know, the cables and all that shit um, in our basement with us that we would take GHB and then work out on. Right. Um, And so that we then incorporated that into the show. We just emptied our whole basement out. We were like, we have to get everything out of here. So we got the workout equipment, which what we call that piece. That piece was called, um, if I had to do it all over again, I'd rather be feared than loved, which was, Joey was in correspondence with this guy who was in jail um, for, you know, for drugs mm-hmm. and his, an ex-girlfriend had ratted him out. And it was kind of this sentiment that would often happen. And a lot of times the reason a lab, a good lab would get busted was usually a relationship gone sour. Right. Because those, that's the one person that you trust and that would be willing to betray that trust right. where nobody else knows about it. Somebody else can, but the girlfriend does know. Right. So this guy broke up his girlfriend, she ratted him out. And then, you know, his line to Joey was, 
if I had to do this over again, I'd rather be feared than loved. Hence the title. You know, and so there's kind of this great sentiment that like, whoa, like really like it is, you know, not that he was like, if I had to do it over again, I wouldn't have a drug lab or right. I wouldn't sell drugs. He's like, no, I'd just be more scary. Right. Which was like really exciting to us, this kind of idea of being really scary, which right. I think we, you know, we love to kind of put on the wall and imagine, but I don't think either of us were really could be that person. So I think, you know, the lab was just a, a small, you know, mm-hmm. just a few ounces of MDMA um, every month or two. Right. But and, did you build the, the lab, the, the functioning lab before? Is that what led to making the, the, the like artistic representation? Yeah, that was that? kind of all in the same time. It yeah. was like in 2006, Joey needed some stuff. And he also was in a place where he needed to get out of. He was in a storefront in Bremerton. And he just put a sheet in the window and was like cooking drugs in a storefront downtown. <laughs> I was like, you can't, this really this is Washington like, state. Yeah. And, it was okay. like, and he'd already been busted once. So it was like, you can't, you gotta do this a little better. Yeah. So I, you know, I helped him get a job in Tacoma working for artists. And then we worked together for a while and the money is just too good. Also, when mm-hmm. you're that smart of a scientist, like it's just silly to work for an art job right. when you can like work a couple of weeks and make enough money to live for a year. Right. Um, and risk, so risk and reward, I guess. Yeah. And, and he was, you know, I grew up with, he was a really good friend and I really wanted to, you know, be there for him. Yeah. <laughs> so my sure. idea of being there for my friend was to like offer my house as a cover for him so that he could have a better space to live in and have a good space to cook in and not be as paranoid and totally scared. Right. And, right. I mean, you know, he also, he was a big drive. It wasn't like I was pushing him to do it. He was, he mm-hmm. wanted to do it. And so it seemed like a, seemed like a great right. idea at the time. So then I made a lot of glass room. We made this, there was one, there was a, a bucket, um, bucket reactor. We called it. That was a five gallon bucket with a stirring mechanism and it needed to stir for like 72 hours. Um, so I made him a glass paddle that would stir inside the bucket. And then we rigged up this like drill, like on a super slow drive on a stand. It was really amazing. There was a couple of things in the lab that I really wish I had somehow preserved or photographed, but I didn't, yeah. I, you know, everything got trashed and we didn't keep any photographs. There was one, there was one set of photographs that ended up in a vice magazine. Um, did a, like an expose on cookers, but it was in, it was, it was in there anonymously. So if you actually want to find it, you can see one picture of the lab there, but um, everything else was kind of destroyed. There were some things that were really amazing. So some of my idea was to not recreate the actual objects themselves, but recreate that feeling. Because I think that if you try to recreate the actual object, you often, it looks too much like a set. I wanted yeah. to create things that had that feeling. So it was pumping water, a lot of glass, some really beautiful, perfect glass, and then something kind of hodgepodge together. Right. Like, well, that's using... one of the things I noticed uh, uh, with the the pieces that end up in a gallery. These mm-hmm. tableaus that look, you know, they're directly referencing a cooking setup. Um, yeah, there's brightly colored glass often involved. Mm-hmm. It's clean. It doesn't look like it's been used. Almost mm-hmm. like it's, um, yeah, it's a. It contradicts what 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 I'm conditioned to think yeah. of a basement laboratory, which would look like dirty, kind of sketchy, dark, 
um, dangerous. Like there's something more approachable about the stuff that you're presenting. Yeah. And yet I think, it still gives off that vibe. Like, and I think that's what I noticed about his lab was how well lit and fun it was. Oh, okay. You know, he had a big shrine in it to the Jose Malverde is the patron saint of drug dealers. Okay. Often in drug labs or in drug situations, you'll find this, the patron saint of drug dealers. Um, and so he had this big shrine to it. So it's like this, you know, this statue, this plastic statue, and then all these like plastic flowers around it. Mm -hmm. He loved like shrines and a weird accoutrement. This, this piece there is a shrine to okay. Joey. A lot of those just kind of leftover items of his. Um, and so, um, I really enjoyed that part and it's something that you can't, you know, you can't just invite your friend and be like, Oh my God, check out this lab. Come over to my house and yeah. see it's amazing. It's really well lit. Beautiful. It's all these colors in it. Uh -huh. So it's not like a dark and you know, it's not like, you know, Kaczynski's shack in the woods. It's like, it's a totally different thing than you'd imagine. And so mm -hmm. kind of trying to like recreate that feeling. There was a table that was, that came with the house. It was, we had in the basement that there was a table and the workout machine which I both then kind of incorporated into my studio practice. Cause that was my, my studio at that point was like, you know, in the basement, in the house. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we started, you know, calling them tweaker tables mm -hmm. and which is what there, this table has come from. And now what this table is kind of a new version of, um, and well, these table, just look like work, like it's just a work, it's just a work table. Yeah. And so there was a work table in my, this basement. one looks like something you put in your home. It, it's like, a, you know, now becoming like this new coffee table, very domestic yeah. object yeah. Um, where this was these versions of these kind of like very functional domestic object where it's, it's you know, in the basement. And it was I had a, a piece that was going into a show in Seattle and it needed a pedestal and I didn't want to use a white pedestal. So we just grabbed this table from the basement and then I, I was like, I need to get that table back. And then the Seattle Art Museum bought the piece. Including the and, table. And I was like, fuck, I can't take the table back <laughs> now. Like, that's part of the work. Yeah. So I lost that table. So I had to make a new table. So I replicated that table into my basement. And then in that process, I don't think I really understood it until I remade the table. So right. I had to replicate it. And then I was like, oh, this is part of the practice. This is creating this. And so... There was a show at the Macaron that must have been 2009 or 2010 that I, you know, kind of my old practice of, of making work was to send everything I had to the gallery, get as long of a time as I could to install because that was going to be when I was making the work, mm -hmm. get as much equipment as the gallery would let me rent. So rent, you know, woodworking equipment, rent a welder, get grinders, like get all this equipment, get as many people as I could to help me. And so the first thing we do is make tables right? because we all need tables to work on. And we want a table that we can kind of ruin because if I use the gallery table, we're just going to fuck it up. So right. we'd make metal tables and make wood tables and then use those to construct the work on. And then the last thing at the end of the install would be to turn that table into a functional piece. Right. So sometimes it would be about leaving what was left on the table, the cigarettes, the beer, the mark making on the table. Sometimes it would be a replication or a, you know, a set making right. process where we'd kind of like redo a thing. Yeah. Um, and I think essentially it was thinking about that lab, thinking about the basement was making something that felt like you looked at it and it looked as if somebody just walked away, Right. that you walked in and they left 
And then you're you're sitting there puzzling about what they were up to mm-hmm. and kind of what was going through their mind when they were there and it not necessarily being totally clear. And I think that became pretty, to me, became pretty important to kind of obscure what was happening. And right. so from the functionality of those first pieces of the separatory funnel, the boiling flask, the Erlen Meyer that are really clear about what they're doing. The piece of Seattle art museum bought was a very clear boiling flask. It was a, it was a condensing unit. It, mm-hmm. You could, you could easily cook it, it. We actually used it to make booze worked great. It just like has a water pump. There's a burner on it. Mm-hmm. It's like, boom, it just, and, and it was really clear and that was, it was interesting, but then it, it became more exciting. I think with the tables to have these objects on it, sometimes it was a drug reference or sometimes it looked like a drug reference at first. And then you looked at it, you're like, that's not drugs. Yeah. And they're not smoking drugs out of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just looks like it. It's somebody weird doing something. And I think yeah. that that then again goes back to even a further deeper reference of the Northwest and the the people there and the craftsmanship there that's very much about functionality and making weird things that work for you and and sometimes are aesthetic but are a, you know not in a way that they were ever going to be commercialized they're only for right. the enjoyment or yeah. the functionality of the object i like this idea of a, a trail of history when you're when you're leaving all the evidence of, of you and your friends and whoever were working mm-hmm. on the install, building the table to work on, the table becomes part of the overall installation. That's And then, you know, the viewer comes in and sees all these elements and tries to put together some sort of narrative. I think by mm-hmm. leaving that trail of history, that's the invitation in itself for the viewer, perhaps. It's, you're not yes. sweeping up after yourself. Yeah, and I think it, it becomes very timely it becomes very much about that space and that Mm -hmm. what is happening right then and i think that it's it's really challenging um as an artist to kind of be in an install and not have a really clear idea of what you're going for at the end right but i mean i think oscar was really helpful with me i mean i don't think i could have done those things without his assurance that that was a good way to do things right that you can walk into a gallery and not know what you're going to do and in one week's time you can have a good art show and you just need to be confident in that and go through it right um and that way of working predates the the stuff you were doing um that 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 has the tableaus with the glass on it and stuff right yes maybe we'll just go we'll 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 walk back in time a little bit um you and your brother Oscar Toison, am I pronouncing yeah. his last name yeah. correctly? Um, collaborated on these things. And, and, and this is just on stuff that I've re- I read about you in the past few days mm-hmm. in preparation to come up here. Instead of actually making the stuff in a studio, um, you know, fully knowing that you're going to have a show in this, in this space, this art space, gallery, whatever, um, the, the move was to show up at the space a week before check it out and then maybe just scavenge the city yeah and then build something with the stuff that you found um and ho- hopefully some the results with any luck would be compelling and interesting and yeah chase a feeling yeah that and after. that and that kind of you know with any hope that's the really that's the the, the nerve-wracking part and i think the part that oscar was good about showing me and allowing me to get a little confidence in that mm-hmm. um that it is it is possible and it's very scary but it can be um 
very energizing because it it really becomes very immediate that you don't yeah. you're not making a sketch yeah. you're not making some sort of plan you're just like finding the object and working with it and really pushing yourself to perform in the moment yeah. i mean maybe it's somehow related to musicians and the way they're asked to perform on stage their art that they come up with these ideas and then they have to sit down and do it and you know with oscar and i i think i would loosely i would collect objects and you know processes and oscar would collect ideas and kind of concepts and then we'd get together for a show and kind of slam all those things together and see what would come out at the other end mm -hmm. yeah i i I think that's a you're sort of putting it on the line, right? When you're when you're working that way, yeah. It's either it's either you almost don't have a choice. You're going to have to figure it out. Yeah, and there's times when things are really going to fail right close to the end, mm -hmm. and you 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 know need to make an adjustment. I think mm -hmm. the our our show we did in 2007, 2008 at the Seattle Art Museum, um, we had this. We had kind of come with the idea of making a stove that was a water heater. And by the day of the opening, we we really hadn't finished the piece. We were not very close at all. And, you know, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the opening's at 6. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Friday. I got three hours until the opening. I'm down in the railroad tracks in the south of Seattle looking for a can on the side of the tracks. And then I fucking find one. And I'm, like, in my car, driving back to the Seattle Art Museum, get it installed by, like, 4.30, Boom, doors open at five and it yeah. was, you know, and, and it was like so nerve wracking and crazy and really calm that we knew, I think, even maybe not having the clear plan is part of what makes us work. But we knew that even if we didn't get that object, we'd be able to make it work. And maybe also if it was just a failure, that would be OK. And right. I think that that really letting the failure show is part of the part of that process making that work and not being so intense about your art that like it has to be a certain way and i think that that is something that i've really i'm, I'm co constantly reminded of in my own studio practice and working for other artists that i really i think it's really important to show your failures and mistakes and your weaknesses yeah and not feel like it has to be this or it's nothing right that's well said I can identify with that that way mm -hmm. of thinking. Mm -hmm. And it's hard, you're right. It's easy to yeah. get trapped in this like it's gotta be a certain way or it's gotta yeah. look This is what I wanted. I yeah, wanted this yeah, polished yeah. and I wanted this perfect yeah. and I did just like this. But then... but being cool or or being able to embrace when it doesn't work out that way and and ultimately I think if I can speak from my own experience, like when mm -hmm. it doesn't work out, that thing that presents itself through failure is actually far more interesting than the thing yes. I was trying to go after. Yes. That you're trying to get somewhere and then you stop short yeah. and it's the stop short. It's the skid mark yeah. on your way into the thing yeah. that is the most exciting. Yeah. And I think, do you recognize that when it's happening? I'm starting. I think, yeah, I think I can, I can get there. And I think there's also some even, practiced fostering of that yeah that like this is what i'm going for and i might get there but i got a good i got a, a, a good idea that it's just not gonna work yeah and it's gonna be a failure but without it's also i think it's dangerous because you can set yourself up and you're like oh i'll make this great failure and then right. i think if you try too hard with the failure you're actually trying to make a thing then it gets and tight and you're not getting weird. you're not yeah. getting the failure itself yeah um i think i found it easiest to get to it by having 
if I work with an assistant, I often like to get like college aid, somebody younger that hasn't had a lot of experience and then give them a process that is outside of the real house, but let them think that they can do it and not kind of push them on a failure, yeah. but say, here's what I need you to do. Weld this thing and grind this and cut it to the specifications. Right. And they get really close, right. you know, and it doesn't look like a, a, a fake. Right. Um, right. So I think, yeah, there are, I think recognizing that getting to that, I mean, I always fucking break stuff. Well, that's part of it. Right. Imagine working with glass. You're dealing with that quite a bit. Right. Before, it's and... always right before the opening. <laughs> I just, yeah, just this show in Toronto, we had something that was like on a shelf and I was using an impact driver next to the shelf and it shook the shelf and a piece of glass came flying off. And it was this beautiful, it was a broken bottle. It was an old bottle, this beautiful broken bottle. Mm -hmm. And then it broke into three smaller pieces. And, you know, the opening's like in a couple hours. There's no choice but to like make it work. Yeah. And so then... And I hadn't hadn't had that happen in a few shows, and it was kind of exciting moment to like. Did you pick try and the, piece it back together? Put the, pick the glass back up and put it back on the shelf in a different arrangement. Okay. And so then it it became. You don't try and actually like glue it. Glue it back together. No, I did. I mean, if I think if I had glue, I wouldn't be afraid to do that yeah. or like put it back together in some way. Right. I think some of the actually the stained glass stuff that the the kind of stained glass space that I have in there has been a lot about repairing glass, mm -hmm. putting things back together. Uh, I've got this lamp shit I'm working on that's just all broken glass yeah. like that. That lamp over there with the two ends of the beer bottle stuck back together, yep. that's soldered back together. And so that kind of repair process is this, you know, metal and hot hot metal and glass. Yeah, and it's very that that's very much related to that kind of failure but fixing it. And it's a, I mean, it's a maybe it's just me, but it's very much to me of a northwest aesthetic of like fixing things but the fix itself really shows mm -hmm. you know that mm -hmm. it's not about fixing it to hide the break it's just about fixing it to make it work right. or in some ways to even use the fix as the the centerpiece right you know the, that's the interesting the, part yeah, of it actually yeah, is, is totally. and that goes back to like the failure or the error yeah and honoring that in some way yeah exactly yeah, cool yeah um Maybe this is a good spot to talk about, you know, since we're talking about making and, you know, arguably the craftsmanship behind these things and when mm -hmm. things fail yeah. or break. Um, um, I wonder, you know, there is a there is a craft component to the stuff that you're mm -hmm. making, w whether it's the hand blown glass, um, the the utilization of light bulbs and wooden shelves. There's a little bit of woodworking going on in your stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and we're starting to talk a little bit about, you know, the, the, the dilemmas of working in the content before we turn on the mics, the dilemmas between the contemporary art world and the craft mm -hmm. world. And, and I wonder mm -hmm. if you wrestle with that, those identities ever, or um, if you can even consider them or is it, do you, do you not get caught up in, in that distinction? Yeah, I think that is, that's a, a kind of a constant, constant battle. Um, I mean, maybe it's even to the point where I'm I'm at peace with the battle itself, that it's yeah. still a fight, but I'm not trying to find which side I land on. Uh, my parents were artists, and so Oscar and I grew up in a very art-related environment. They were bookbinders, mm -hmm. and so we were trained from a very young age in a traditional Italian bookbinding process. Um, and then in, in college, I studied printmaking, then after college, studied 
woodworking, started blowing glass. I met this metal worker named Jorgen Harl, um, who was living on Orcas Island. He's in Bolinas, California now, but incredible. One of the one of the best metalsmiths and arguably in the States or potentially in the world right now. Mm-hmm. Really just amazing work. Um, super knowledgeable. And I was really, you know, kind of chomping at the bit to like learn more processes and to start my own studio practice and art. And I was just really like curious to kind of get into this. And in these conversations, I used to go out to the island and spend weekends with him. Um, And he was like very blunt in his assessment. He was like, look, you just you got to work for 30 different artists before you should start thinking about your own work. And, you know, kind of him being this older guy, I just really trusted his, his way just to soak up knowledge. Yeah. And just like, don't even worry about it. Like, just take a step back and just start making what other people want you to make. And don't worry about your own studio practice because that'll come once you get knowledge. And I think from maker to maker, craftsman to craftsman, it really, it, it, it really struck a chord. It was like, okay, that makes more sense because then I can relax. Yeah. You know, and I can learn how to make this, you know. And we're getting into apprenticeship territory here. Yes, way, right? and, that was, okay. and, and that's really what I was, you know. Which is quite common in the world of craft. You apprentice yes. any sort of trade, totally. trade, actually. Yeah. Where there's I like mean, a there, there's like a historical way of getting from A to B to C to D. Yes, and, and an to me, it's like, you know, the way it does in, you know, from an electrician, tattoo artist, yeah. you know, glass blowers, they all. Printmaker. Kind of, I'll do these apprenticeships and and I think I was also amazed when I kind of finally made it to New York City and I was like who did you study at and everyone's like nobody I went like I went to college and I taught myself and it's like that's fucking crazy that you're painting and you didn't like there's so many fucking painters in New York City why don't you guys study under each other right it'd be way quicker and you'd be way better at it and way sh- less and shitty. not in so much debt probably yeah the, the, the and, the, and less bills. full of yourself yeah. <laughs> you'd get humbled by like working for older people that that just make a thing and they're really fucking good at making it. And they're not like, they don't think it's some like big hero moment. They're Mm -hmm. just like, I just make this. And so Jorgen's definition of a master, you know, work for 30 different masters was, you know, a master of a, of a production line, Mm -hmm. you know, that this company makes this cup and this bowl. And there's a guy that works there and he knows how to make them perfectly, you know, all day, every time work for him for a while and you get a certain knowledge and it's not that he's making it the, you know, the right way or, you know, that there's some sort of, you know, there's a, there, maybe there is a better way to do it. And down the block, there's another guy making it and he makes it as a, a different way. And there's, you know, in Seattle, there's just this, you know, or the Northwest, there's just this kind of really amazing, you know, amount of people making glass, making craft work, you yeah. know, between metalwork, woodwork, ceramics glass is just you know very much a center of it and so it was glass was a conscious choice because it was the biggest one Mm -hmm. because to me it made the most sense that as a you know as a craftsman i was gonna have the best chance to stay employed if i learned how to blow glass right you know, I had the same. It's love. also just sexy. I mean, the spectacle. Yeah, it's of totally glass like, blowing. yeah, it's totally cool. So yeah. <laughs> I think there's a great, yeah. I mean, it's like, it really attracts very cool, you know, people that want to be cool. And then it really fucking humbles you. Yeah. Because you spend three or four years just being a total failure. Yeah. You know, and I think, you know, with metal work, you kind of, it's a similar sort of process, but 
you can pause and put it down and you can get, you know, right out the gate, you can get a decent piece made in metal. Cause if you, if you make a mistake, it doesn't fall apart. It just, you know, you, it takes longer right. to do it and you can and, correct it. Arguably. Yeah. And with glass often it's your failures are just, yeah. are just on the floor immediately. Right. It just like everything falls, folds up, breaks, gets squished, sticks mm-hmm. to the side of the door, you know, everything that can happen. And so that, that seemed like a really, you know, a, a good place to put, to do an apprenticeship, to put my time in. Sure. So I found an artist in Bellingham and worked for him for, you know, four years, kind of a pretty traditional apprenticeship. Just like I, you know, this is a glass blower. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I was working in a, in a, you know, in a kitchen making like, you know, 15 bucks an hour. And, you know, I started working for this guy seven bucks an hour. and was like, cool. This is my, like, this is my apprenticeship program. Yeah. So I just like stuck with that. And then once I got enough skill to start working as an assistant for other people, then I started going to Seattle and Tacoma and spending more time working for different artists. Um, and I mean, the Northwest is a great place to do it. And it's, yeah. you know, it's just, there's, there's shops everywhere and everyone knows it. And it's a, it's often a really fun work environment. It's really, you know, it's close quarters, but everyone's working really hard and everyone really loves what they're doing. I think the physicality keeps spirits up, you know, often when you're working hard, yeah. I think it, you're tired and sore, but you're having fun because everyone's, you know, everyone's hung over and feeling like shit and having to work really hard and produce yeah. a bunch of these crazy, you know, shapes for somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a really kind of a fun, a fun way to spend the twenties of like just working really hard and learning all the time and, and acquiring you, an amazing skill set. Yeah. Like. And just, it's this really wide breadth of skills. And the, I think the oral history of glass is really exciting also kind of as a, you know, somebody who loves to absorb stories that mm-hmm. there's, you know, I learned stories about traditional Italian techniques in the hot shop from, you know, some American who had never been to Italy and this story had never been written down. You know, I can, I could gossip about Italian glassmakers that I've never met. And you're telling and you're learning, you're hearing these stories while you're, while you're glass, working, you know, which from is great. an older guy that yeah. learned from another older guy. Yeah. And then you, you know, I know all these stories about all the shops in Seattle that are just this great history. And I'll, you know, I'll meet some old timer that I've never met and we start putting it together and we can kind of build a story. And I think, uh-huh. Essentially, the way we'll talk about it is that, that I can trace my lineage of my skills back three generations. Wow. You know, that where I learned a certain technique, I can tell you who I learned that from, who they learned that from, right. where that gets you in the Northwest. And so I think that, you know, and then from there back to Italy in the 70s and how it, that's great, how it got there. And I think that's a really, just really a exciting, fun thing. And, and it's, and it's really challenging and it takes a, a really great combination of ego to think that you can do it, mm-hmm. but humility to keep trying when you fail. Right. Right. And so I think that process, I think that process of attempting and failing all the time was also then it really made sense to apply these failures in my work. And I think it was like, that was one thing that really clicked right away when I started talking with Oscar about larger concepts and these bigger projects was mm-hmm. like this idea of failure was very clear because I'd been failing yeah. miserably for five years. Right. You know? And yeah. So I think that that, that kind of tied back in. Um, in so is, way. is 
your brother Oscar, your bridge into the contemporary art world? I mean, because it sounds like you you went through all these apprenticeships, f- figured some things out, and then this collabor- collaborative project with your mm-hmm. brother sort of Yeah, I mean, and- I think in, in a really, like, kind of uh, simplified way, it was, you know, Oscar always was, was the illustrator and the painter. I mean, the paintings he was making at, like, 15 and 16 would, like... Mm-hmm blow away what's happening in the new york art world right now and he like got over painting by the time he was 18 he was like this is just too complicated <laughs> uh, it's like too many things to keep track of and so he was always much more of an illustrator and an intellect and i was always much more of like the sculptor making things like trying to build something i was always building these contraptions that would have like levers and pulleys and like rubber bands and shit like doing you know booby traps and things like always just building really weird things Mm -hmm. and so then oscar's kind of you know avenue was to enter into the contemporary art world to go to new york to go to cooper do the whitney curatorial program and my approach was to you know i i went to liberal arts college and then dropped out um because i really wanted to get into into an apprenticeship into you know a traditional studio yeah i just didn't i didn't i didn't need to write another paper about it i just wanted to yeah yeah i wanted to go study i was you know i was coming into the studios on friday and saturday night and nobody was there it was just me in the printmaking studio and i thought i could i bet i could get paid to do this Mm -hmm. you know i'm sitting here paying fucking insane amounts of money to, to come in here and i bet i could work with somebody and so you know ended up in new orleans at a print shop and got a job working in the glass shop and then kind of used that as a springboard to get back to the Northwest and get into a shop there. Um, and so I really was consciously staying in the Northwest because I loved the Northwest. I wanted to be there. I wanted to figure out a way to stay there and work in the arts, but in the craft side. And so, I mean, it was, it was like really basic of like Oscar was went to the arts and I went to the crafts mm-hmm. And by 2005, 2006, we've both been doing it long enough that we could really have some very interesting conversations about sharing our back and forth of, you know, Oscar talking about ideas and me talking about ways to put that together. Right. And so our first collaborations, the first big collaboration was in 2006 in Germany in Leipzig. Mm -hmm. Um, And Oscar wanted to build this, there was a coal tunnel. So it was a, eight foot wide, 30 foot deep tunnel um, that he wanted to build this kind of undulating floor and like geometric patterns, like triangles and trapezoids. Within the gallery space? In the, or, in the or, coal tunnel. Oh, okay. And it was, it was in an old factory. Okay. So it was a, a, a show that was in many different parts of the factory. Okay. Um, so we wanted to build this really weird floor inside of this coal tunnel. Okay. Um, that would start at the floor, at the entrance of the coal tunnel, and then the the floor and would climb up the walls and end up down 30 feet, you'd be at the ceiling. Uh Um, And so he was having trouble figuring out how to kind of make this floor work so you could actually walk on it. Cause he'd been making these shapes as ceilings and as objects, but not things that you could stand on kind of a load bearing thing. And so we started having all these conversations about, how to do that and finally he was like well why don't you just come to germany with me and help me make this uh-huh and so i was like that's a great idea so then i was there 
So it was, I got there and it was his project and I was there to help him with his project and I was supposed to get paid a certain amount of money. And then yeah. we got to the end of the project. He's like, you know, I don't think that there's going to be any money left to pay you. And I was like, well, how about this? You don't pay me and you put my name on it. Right. And it was like really simple. And as brothers, I think it wasn't, we didn't have to question our egos or negotiate anything more than just like, okay, cool. Right. And I really trusted him with his ideas. So I never felt like I needed to have my imprint mm -hmm. on the idea. And I think that's how our collaborations really started and were able to work well together because I think that is so important in collaboration is not be not really holding on to your ego, not feeling yeah. like you need to have your imprint because I think often these collaborations that people do that don't really know each other are just kind of, getting to know each other they you know it's like i'll do this part and then you do that part and you know right. like i think in the in the pipe maker in the glass pipe maker world is like really it's like classic collabs mm -hmm. where like one guy makes like the figure he makes and the other guy makes like the octopus he makes and they put the octopus on the guy and <laughs> yeah. look at the collaboration it's great yeah and i think oscar and i were really like you know from the beginning, it was this really great collaboration where it was one of us would lead the design and the other would lead the building. And at first it was usually Oscar would like come up with some idea and then I would like say, here's how we can build it. And we'd build it together. And right. then there would be adjustments within that design. Um, it was a really, a very fluid kind of process that got us there that was just out of necessity. It was like Oscar needed help right. building this. Right. And yeah. then I could help build it. And then he couldn't pay me. So I got something. I've got my name on it. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, collaborations are like any other relationship. You know, you, you hope that it's an <laughs> ideal partnership of some sort. There's a nice exchange. Yeah. There's not too many power slash control struggles. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's, and you guys are family. So you yeah. know, you know each other. I think that and trust there, was, an, was so important that's because a, that's yeah. an advantage. And I think that's where the, the, the trust and the putting your ego aside is really important. And mm -hmm. I don't think, I think it's tough to get there without really knowing each other, you know, right. like being in a, in a relationship and the hard work it takes to get there and the compromise. And if you start putting yourself first, you're going to fuck it up. Mm -hmm. You need to put not the other person, but your each other, the two of you, goes first right. and putting that out there. And I think that that's, that's easy to do as brothers. Cause we've always done it. We've always shared everything. Right. So it wasn't, it wasn't tough. And I, I just, you know, I love him and I respect him so much that it was, it was, it was easy at any time to let him lead things or on the other side, when he would let me lead, he wouldn't, mm -hmm. you know, so your older brother. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like three years older. Okay. And he, and I, he's got a different last name. Yes. What's the so story like, behind that? If you don't mind. He, he took his first wife's last name. Oh, okay. Yeah. And held on to it. Yeah. Then, you know, after they they were married 10 years, they met in Cooper Union. Okay. Lawn was on. And they, uh, then after 10 years, they split up and he was already like having shows under that name. Right. And was like, I'll just keep this name. <laughs> um, so we have, we have started some of our, the collaborations we've actually now started calling the Hanson brothers. Okay. Um, which is both, you know, it's our last name, but it's also a loose reference to um, not the band Hanson, but the band of Mbop fame. Yes, not <laughs> that band, but the other Hanson band called the Hanson Brothers, which was like no effects and all. Oh, okay. They made this weird, like Canadian, it was a band about hockey. <laughs> 
it's like, like punk rock hockey punk rock about hockey guys. and it was basically ramones covers like it's ramones songs but they would change the lyrics to be about hockey mm-hmm. and i was just looking it up they just like finally quit like in 2015 they like made their last album with like we're done that's a long ride i was like holy shit because we found out about it in the 80s or late 80s early 90s we were in vancouver on like a family trip and uh-huh. like going to the record store and we found this fucking tape that's like the Hanson brothers we're like holy shit and then it's like got this hockey thing and we put it like this sounds like the fucking remotes but it's about <laughs> hockey man this is fucking amazing and so i think yeah that's Sort of a homage to it's, that. It's really important to us. <laughs> That's cool. Um, this is, you know, indirectly connected to art, but but I didn't realize it at the time, but but we were dropping off art at the same time a couple weeks ago at uh-huh. the Nada Fair. Oh, yes. Um, I was in the truck in front of you, and you rolled up. In, oh, in and Ryan truck. was getting it. Yeah. I was like, okay. And I didn't, I didn't realize it was you because I hadn't put a face to the name yet. Yes. But I did notice the, the thing that jumped out. You guys were unloading logs off of the roof of your truck. Yes. But the thing that jumped out at me is you had one of your kids with you. Yes, Frankie. And, and I was like, that's awesome. Here's someone that, that, that brought their kid along for... For whatever reason, I but can't still, believe that everyone doesn't do that. I take my kid around, my older yeah. kid around with me regularly, and she's been at galleries when I'm installing. She's in my studio hanging out. I've taken her on studio visits. She's gone with me on art deliveries. Yeah, and there was like, uh, I immediately was like, oh, okay, I'm not the only person that does this. Yeah, it was really refreshing for me to see you with your kid there, and I guess that's the lead-in story to for me to ask you like. Did becoming a parent um, or having kids in your life affect your studio practice or the way you think about art um, at all? Or like if that's playing any sort of role? Yeah, I mean, I think so much. And I think that there's some there's definitely some obvious things and that I could identify. And I think there's also a lot that I can't identify that are also very, very present. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, again, it comes back to Oscar. (laughs) You know, he has he has three daughters and mm-hmm. so he was taking his daughters to his installs by the time one of them Tacoma was you know four years old so yeah. he was taking her to installs and so he kind of paved the way and showed me oh yeah totally and so it was easy to me that once Frankie turned four I was like oh yeah you get a pocket knife and you're coming to installs with me. <laughs> and you know she came to that not install she like sat there for five hours on a blanket Leo Fitzpatrick was really great he brought her like all these coloring yeah. books and stickers and shit it was really awesome she was and, just hanging out when you guys built and that she just thing. sat there for five hours and was like cool and then we go get our nails and get the Manny Petty <laughs> like our little treat for the city and yeah. she's like she loves it and it's awesome. And I think, you know, there's things, there's obvious things like that. There's, you know, a playfulness that I think came both with being in a relationship with Blair and like really finding this like amazing power of love mm-hmm. that I think some of my work lightened up right away when I got married. <laughs> I was like, all right. And and it's some of it was I, I was diagnosed with cancer, went through the chemo, got better got married and was like, you know, I don't need to make like really dark stuff. Like it's okay to put a bunch of like colored glass and get a little zany. Mm -hmm. Um, Cause you know, it's just, it's not forever. And like, I'm not really that dark of a person. You know, I think a lot of my work is about loss and death and sadness, but potentially from the perspective of a happy person. I think that that's kind of a little confusing at times, but I think that that's, 
you know, a basis of some of this and then, you know, getting married and really finding awesome love and then, you know, having kids that are also just amazing and awesome and like what they enjoy. Yeah. I have a rule when they come to my studio, or I, I have a rule at the house that when, you know, the, so we don't break everything. <laughs> like some things are toys and some things are tools. I'm always saying that's it. Right. You know, that's a tool, not a toy. Right. Like they totally know that's it. But then when they come to my art studio, everything is a tool and everything is a toy uh-huh. and you can't make any mistakes in the art yeah. studio. And I'll re- confuse uh, your children. At all. <laughs> right? And I've already like, but they totally get it. Like when they walk into the studio and I've already regretted it. Cause they'll come in and they'll just like break glass. They'll yeah. come and just like grab something and throw it. Yeah. And they're like, look dad. And yeah. I'm like, no, dude, you're really trying me. Yeah. But it's really awesome. And I think that that's important. I think my parents did a good job of like giving me that gift where they were like, we could just come in the art studio and we could do whatever. And they really like helped foster that. And I think that that enjoyment that I had as a kid was important to pass on that. Like you can come in my art studio and just fucking freak out. And that's like, I think to me, an important thing with art that, you know, comes back to this failure thing and this ability to kind of like be present with it and not get some sort of plan in your head and then have to have it be that, that, right everything else in my life is like that. Everything else has to be right. Like, you know, you can't just like kind of do your taxes and right. like, Whoa, it's a little bit of a failure. Whoa. Yeah. That, I think it's a better taxes this way. <laughs> like, it's just not like, that's not how it works. Yeah. Like, everything has a certain place it goes and everything has a certain way it works. And in the art studio. And to me, my art is a place to, to get away from that and to enjoy myself. And, you know, I don't want to make my work too froofy and playful and, just whatever goes, man. But yeah. I think it's like, it's also important to not get too tight about it because if you're not enjoying it, like, why are you making it? Yeah. Like when we were kids, like the best thing you could do was to go to art class. Like that was the funnest thing. Yeah. You're and free like, in there. Totally. You can yeah. just do whatever. It's great. Yeah. And like somehow Which also, the, I think is what it comes back to. Yeah. And we get to this place where like, now we're all, you know, older and like this New York art world and contemporary art scene is like so serious and yeah. you're like jockeying for position and it's like, you know, who's doing what, knowing who, which biennial are yeah. in, da, da, da. it's like all this like fucking CV and like, yeah. you know, all this shit. It's just like, I, where is the fun? Where is the like throwing clay at the wall yeah. and like getting high and going, making a bong. Like <laughs> yeah. that shit was, that's why I became an artist and I really don't want to get too far from that Yeah, yeah. because I don't see, you know, of course I want to make a living, but I don't see the merit in it becoming super commercial and becoming this really didactic, intense thing. Mm-hmm. So I think the kids have helped, encourage that and foster that and and remind me to not get far from that. Um, I think also, you know, the domestic life I think has played a big role in that change in the family. And I think some of it is a combination of my studio moving out of my house Mm -hmm. and having a very separate geographical location from my studio and to the kids in the married life. And I think that combo like, made the you know it's it's strange to say because it you know in some ways my studio practice having always been in my house would seem like it was more domestic but maybe what it is is like i'm in my studio and i kind of miss the domestic reality of it Mm -hmm. and so you know i've started 
getting more serious about lighting that actually functions as lighting, mm -hmm. you know, things that are more functional as, you know, that could exist in a normal home <laughs> easier, you know, not right. so impossible and a bunch of crazy glass and things sticking out everywhere. I'm kind of, maybe I'm compromising somehow that like, okay, if you're going to have kids in your house, like here's something that works. Right. Um, I mean, I'm also, you know, I'm spending so much time working on my house and like making it function that my headspace is a lot in that kind of world of like, rewiring switches and putting in good lights. Cause like having good lighting in my house is like so important. Like, uh -huh. you know, having like, I'm like deep in the world of like led, like, you know, the right Kelvin range mm -hmm. and getting just the right warmth light and like to, that. to, to set a, a, like a, a mood or yeah, like, just like a domestic setting, just yeah, to yeah, like yeah. have dinner in a room that's like not shitty light. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Like it turns out it's like really difficult. I know and it's amazing a, how few and, people pay attention and not a lot like, of people pay attention. So yeah. I, it's like to dig, to find that information of like, what is the, what is the Kelvin rating of these lights Yeah, and like getting the light, the LEDs that don't buzz and like mm. getting the right switches that are compatible. So like my domestic life is really dominated by that. I have like a whole room dedicated to like how to deal and figure like, out lighting, figure that out. And so of course then it spills over and I come to my studio and I'm mm -hmm. like, Oh, I want to fuck with this lighting. I think, you know, probably some of it was, was started in the studio with using the LEDs. And if you get a bunch of these colored lights together and you really flood a space with the colored light, if you don't look at the actual colored light and you look at the wall, mm -hmm. the wall looks like a perfect warm, white light yeah and so kind of that discovery and then started to work with some of these leds that have different patterns and color changing mm -hmm. that i have to wire it myself and so i started kind of getting into the wiring part um i i just follow i feel like i follow curiosities pretty loosely which i think comes back to that idea of the studio practice being fun of art being yeah. fun that if I'm engaging with something like electricity or glass or whatever, I'm, you know, what type of shadow out. this light will kick. Yeah. Then I yeah. can just, then I'll just fully like let myself geek out. I'm mm -hmm. like, I'll have, I have some extra money. I'm going to go spend it on a weird light. Like I'm yeah. going to like investigate this process. I'm going to like go down this rabbit hole with not an intention of what I'm going to get out of it, but I just want to, I want to investigate the object or the process. Um, enjoy it. And sometimes it's at my house and it's about getting the right lighting. So my wife doesn't notice it. And she's like, this room looks great. And I just spent like, you know, two weeks. Yeah. Just there. Totally. Just like all of my energy, yeah. like trying to figure out this light. And finally I end up on a light that's like $20 and like everything's really simple, but it took this huge investigation to get to it. Right. Um, and then I'll just transfer that into my studio. I'll come back to the studio and like, oh, right. what's what's fun to get weird on? And yeah. I'll like, I'll... sounds like that's how you're learning too. I mean, you've got, yeah. to, you, you've got, totally. to, it's you a, want to learn. Yeah, it's totally. It's yeah. A, you know, and I think I'm past a place. I mean, I'm still learning. There's still some old timers I talk to a lot and kind of keep connections with, and I still want to pursue more active apprenticeships. Um, I'm like really into this idea of trying to get an apprenticeship in a tattoo shop, but I don't think it's possible. <laughs> uh, I think they would not, I don't think they would want me <laughs> They're like you have too bad of a reputation. Uh, but I want to get like, I, I want to continue to learn that, but I'm also in a place where a lot of my studying and apprenticeship is really done, you know, reading mm -hmm. and watching videos about things right. like, you know, because I'm at a place where I know enough now, 
I can get to the next level right. of information. Right. You know, like with electricity and lights. Now that I know so much, it doesn't. I could go to somebody, or I can use the information I have to get to the next step. Right. You know. Right. Um, and it, is it fair for me to assume that you know at the start of this conversation, I sort of lay, I described your work, and I maybe maybe emphasized. Um, overemphasized the the tableaus that were like the chem labs, the chemistry mm -hmm, looking things. Mm -hmm. The stuff that I know of yours more recently has uh, um, leans much more to do with the concept of light. You know, you're making these chandeliers. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, did that grow out of your interest in like trying to figure out the lights at home? You're like, actually, I'm going to bring that back to the studio and and play with that as a form and as an object and the sort of contraptions that hold light. Yeah, I think, let's see, there was a couple moments in, I think it was 2010, where I wanted to get these little light, they're like, you see them at the gas station with like a crystal on it, it's like a little, it's like a turntable with LED lights inside of it, mm -hmm. so you like put your crystal on it, and then it slowly rotates your crystal, and changes from a red to a okay. blue to green. It's like, it's very cheap. It's like kind of, you put a it on your dashboard or something. Yeah. It's like this junky thing that okay. like you have on your, like, you know, tchotchke shelf. Yeah. And so in my investigations of this, and when I was living on Vashon Island, um, really getting like, and that I was going through chemo. And so I was like starting to get more into this colorful stuff and yeah. more playful stuff. Maybe qu real quick, we yeah. should give listeners some context. You had yeah. stage four lymphoma. Yes. Yeah. Hodgkin's lymphoma diagnosed. I moved to New York city to move in with my fiance mm -hmm. three weeks later was diagnosed with cancer. So we moved back to the West right. coast to go through Treatment. chemo there because yeah. my, my healthcare is through right. group health. And so and then that, that picks up. So yeah. So we start. No, 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 it's, no, it's, it's important. Yeah. Um, and so we were on this Island, Vashon Island, um, you know, basically just like there to get better. I mean, it wasn't mm -hmm. like too super floored. I was just like, you know, didn't have any hair and I was super stoned. And so obviously then I was making really weird glass. Yeah. Um, so it was like really colorful stuff, getting these weird led lights. I found these little turntables and then like one night, you know, a little late, maybe a little drunk. <laughs> I ordered like 50 of these little turntables. There's still some sitting to see those blue boxes. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I still have some of those. Which I, those will still make it. Those are like new ones that I'll eventually come back in. So, and it's just that a little electric motor turntable. So yeah, spins. just like okay. a little mirrored turntable, yeah. like three or four inches around, just yeah. like tiny little thing, um, and like super, you know, cheap. I'm sure that there's good versions of that. That was an, a, a a reference, like a, an inside joke to other glass blowers, because there are other there are some glass blowers that will use those turntables, but in a non-ironic way, mm -hmm. you know, they're like, Oh, look, this really makes my glass look way better. And they put their glass on it and that's how they display their glass in the gallery or yeah. the show, which I think is really awesome and, you know, really hilarious. And I think there's a lot of the work, especially some of the work from that time that I would make loose little inside jokes about the glass blowing process and about glass blowers. Okay. Because there's a lot of glass blowers, in take themselves pretty seriously. Yeah. And I think kind of poking fun at that was really just an ability to like at the opening of the show, like another glass blower show, but it's like, sees it like, Oh, that's hilarious. Like what you did with that. You know, mm -hmm. sometimes it's about using things like these LED tables. Sometimes it's about using a, a technique with glass, like using some like complex 
Italian technique that it's really important to not to connect all the pieces hot and to not use glue, do something like that. And then glue something really funky to the side of it, mm -hmm. you know, like really kind of this like rough juxtaposition that is only if you know the glass world, you really get the joke. It's still yeah. as an object, it has to, you know, kind of exist in a, in a, in a good way. But, um, so there was like these kind of inside jokes. So those lights, kind of became that and then i think and I, I really hate to say it but I, I think it was dan flavin did have some influence on me that's okay I, I you know i've really like and i think i've really become like why do you hate to say it <laughs> well i guess the, the idea of making art about art has okay. really always really puzzled me i got you that it's like and i think it's you know it's crazy because that's what most art is these days and that's what the new york art world kind of functions on is mm -hmm. art about art everyone's making these references and i think that it's also important to say that if you don't understand what references you could be making you could be making references or you could be making work that somebody has already made and you're entering into a conversation that you are ignorant of so i think it, right. it is it's you know i don't want to be a total outsider artist where i'm completely unaware of these things but i also think that if you're just looking at art books or going to shows and then you're making art about that, you're not really making art about your own human experience. You're making art about somebody else's human right. experience. And, and to a very small audience that might understand that world. Totally. And yeah. I think so maybe maybe what it really is, is it's not so much like an homage to Dan Flavin, but it was understanding that Dan Flavin was really intense about what kind of lights were used in his work. I he see. was like, it has to be this fluorescent tube with this sleeve or this, you know, there was these fluorescent tubes they used to make that were colored and he was like, it has to be this one. And so there's museums that then when the, the companies were going out of business, that like bought as many as they could. Right. And now they have them on a schedule, like every two years after replacing, because with Dan Flavins, if you, when they replace the bulbs, they replace all the bulbs because you can't have one new bulb. Right, because so, that's a little brighter than the other ones. Yes, and so yeah. they have it on a schedule. Like I every see. year, every two years, they replace what all What happens bulbs. when they run out of those bulbs? That's what I wonder. And, <laughs> I, and I want to get to that place, and I want to see a Dan Flavin without any light. And yeah. like that, to me, is going to become really exciting. Oh, man. And so my thought was to find these lights that were really like available everywhere. They're at Home Depot. Like You can get them anywhere. And if that doesn't work you can get another one right. and I'm really like, I don't get intense about like if one breaks, yeah. it like, has to be that light. Like it can be a different light. And right. it's a tough world, tough place to be in because I think also you can, you can get into a dangerous place where you give somebody a little freedom, like whatever you can make, whatever you want. And then they go over the top and they get some stupid, you know, something shitty happening. But right. also that's okay. I think that it's that, that kind of, comes back to that idea of not taking yourself or your studio practice too seriously. Yeah. And I think maybe, maybe that was very much in that way that I was making these inside jokes about glass blowing. I was also poking fun at Dan Flavin of like, he like had these intense bulbs and this like intense program. And I just went to home Depot and like, you know, right. took my change, my laundry money and like bought as many colored bulbs as I could and right. like stuck them in there. Like, look, it's also an art. Yeah. And I think that that it's a, it's a really dangerous place, I think, to like poke too much fun and to use that because I think those kind of humors can be difficult for everyone to read. And they also can, if it's too much about that, it's, it's, it's art about art or it's art about 
something else. Right. And I think it's, impor- or, it's or, or it's art only for certain people. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's important to not get caught up in that. And so it was these little moments, but I, I, I let it grow into something new and more important. And right. I think in my, in this new studio space and these white walls that I have access to, cause I've, I've, it's really the first time I've had white walls. Mm-hmm. Um, the lights have really become more important because yeah. I can come into my studio. I can turn on these chandeliers. I can turn on these wall pieces. You've got natural light and it, it becomes the light becomes yeah. this really exciting, fun, weird thing. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, before we turn on the mics, we were talking about, um, your, the geography of where you've been. You grew up in Washington. Yeah. You came, you, you mentioned that you were considering moving to a city. You checked out New York. You checked out LA. Yeah. Didn't really f- get into either one. Had this opportunity to come out here for work to yeah. upstate New York. Yeah. Um, and now you're in the process of, of packing up and moving back to Washington state. Yes. And you mentioned so one of the main reasons for moving back was like trying to get back to um having fun and being happy uh with your life because of the stresses of the job up here and you've mentioned a few times your displeasure with like the art scene in new york um i wondered if you were comfortable talking about sort of you know that you know crooked path of like Mm -hmm. trying like trying a few things out realizing it wasn't i mean you had some you know incredible life experiences you almost died it sounds like Mm -hmm. stage four cancer is no joke yeah um your wife got sick as as well yeah also like stage you know it was yeah and it was basically stage four i mean i I mean i i want to assume that all these experiences were like kind of at a certain point like you know what i need to get back to being happy and having fun and like not getting caught up in some of this art world stuff it it, is is it a little bit of that can you talk about that a little bit yeah i think that you know my wife being sick was like very much at the forefront of that mm-hmm. conversation. But I think there's, there's a lot of factors that were, that are kind of playing into that. And, you know, the idea of kind of doing what you really enjoy right away and not waiting for that to come is really important. And I think yeah. I've, I've kind of always done that. And I think there was, there was some pauses here coming out here. What was important to, you know, focus on a job and get the kids in a good place and make sure they're happy and create a good home life for them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, really focus on the relationship of my wife and like be, be solid as a family unit. I think was very important. And I think that in a lot of ways it was great to come out here because if we were in the Northwest, just with our, you know, nose to the grindstone, you kind of don't, doesn't matter where you are when you're in that, age when you have young really young kids mm-hmm. doesn't matter where you are you know because you're just focused like you're yeah. most of the time you're inside with your kids making sure yeah. that like they consume they've, things they've eaten i mean their headspace yeah. Yeah, yeah totally yeah. yeah totally and so you know the, it, and it was great to be here i love the hudson valley it's really awesome except for the ticks and the poison <laughs> ivy which is just like fucking everywhere but that's cool i can do that <laughs> But I mean, I just miss the Northwest. I'm so, uh-huh. It's just in my blood. And, you know, I think that there are, I've met some people out here that have reminded me of that. So I don't think it's just a Northwest thing. I'm not you know, yeah. so blind. that I think that it only happens in one place, but there's something really special about the Northwest mm-hmm. and that kind of space. And I think 
being out here has been really great. And I think it's a, you know, a cycle and a moment of like going back. And I think it was important, you know, for my work to really like pull myself completely out of the Northwest and then right. really get into the studio in the same way of like having kids, like go into the studio and just put the blinders on and like work and work and work and work and like get through some shows, get through some pieces, some processes, like get yourself into a good safe space with your work. And then, um, you know, I think it's a good place to kind of go back to the Northwest. And I think the reminder of like, you know, of living life immediately when Blair got sick was really like a big part of that. It's like, let's just, you know, let's focus on getting ourselves into a good place. And, you know, so I think, I mean, I, you know, I joke about the New York art world and I don't, you know, I don't really know it. (laughs) And so I also, I'm sure that as I say this, there's probably somebody listening. It's like, well, he doesn't know so-and-so he doesn't know this and that. And I think that it's totally true. And I think that the little bit I've encountered has, has, you know, turned me off a little bit to its reliance on, you know, on the commercial reality of like sales. And I think that shows have to have like sales or some sort of critical acclaim for them to, for people to like them. And Mm -hmm. I, I think that there's oftentimes there's good shows that are missed because it didn't make a bunch of sales and it didn't get written up in art forum. And I think that's, it's sad. And I think that, that something I really loved about the weird Northwest craft world was that because there's no sales out there anyways, and, and critically no one pays attention, everything is ignored. Everything yeah, is the pressures off the pressures off. And so, yeah. and then you just get to enjoy things. And then sometimes right. you're just enjoying somebody's like salad bowl or Viking ship yeah. or, crazy bong like it's just these kind of things that it's not it's not in the art canon it's not some big uh, overarching idea that has to do with you know art about art it's just like objects for the fun of enjoying objects and i think that you know as a sculptor and i notice this with other sculptors that it's really like it's just an enjoyment of objects really that keeps us coming back to it mm-hmm. and keeps us enjoying that. And I think that that's, you know, at the root of my studio practice and at the root of my enjoyment of art and at the root of my discomfort and confusion with the contemporary art world and the convention center art fair right. market that is driving that. It's a refreshing point of view. And I, I, it's nice to hear that. Because we, I feel like a lot of artists get caught up in the narrative. Like you got to be in one of these three cities in order to, mm-hmm. to like, like get to that place that a lot of artists are trying to get to, which is a self-sustaining career, yeah, and longevity and respect and all that. And you've called you you've self-identified as an outsider a few times, mm-hmm. um, and I, I admire that. And it's also great to know that you have intentionally avoided these cities yet you are able to make this work and, and you've shown it in these cities and you've had opportunities. Yeah. Like, it's sort of like things you've, you've figured out how to make it work for yourself and you're leaving this place to go back to where you're from because that's what you need to do right now. And it's going to be, happy, yeah. you know, um, yeah, I think it's, it's refreshing it's... to hear someone like 
taking charge as opposed to like waiting for something to happen before you make that mm -hmm. leap. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think it feels really dangerous. And I think it's, it's a difficult thing to talk about because I don't, I don't want to disrespect anybody in the New York art world, in the contemporary art world. I think there are great people and it's a great community. We all have noticed things that are wrong with it and we all yeah. have our feeling. And I think that often you talk to somebody and they'll off the record, talk about these kind of things. But I think, you know, trying to kind of parse that out is is difficult and kind of, you know. Well, I noticed that like the shitty things of it usually come into play when when the marketplace is involved. If you if you mm -hmm. take out the mm -hmm. gallery and the sales and the the who's hang, hanging out with who, like social aspect of the marketplace and focus back on the artist and the studio and those and like having conversations with artists like it's as healthy as it ever is. It's like the competitiveness of the gallery system mm -hmm. in the marketplace, I think is what warps people out. Yeah. Um, and it, and it's just this, this drive. For so for me, it's important for, to separate for, those two things. It's like, yeah, that's its own okay. monster. Yeah. This is, this is actually where I thrive. Yeah. I feel like I've been, I've, I've, I'm, I really want to try to avoid having shows in New York and LA and London, like the big cities. Yeah. And like, I want to do this like tour of like smaller cities in America. I feel like I'm taking my cues from like the underground rap world. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, there's these guys out there that have been doing their, you know, our age, they've been doing it since they were 18. Uh -huh. They've had their moments. They've had a little radio play. It's just barely a job. Right. And like what they got to do is they need to go out there and like play shows for 200 people in South Dakota. Right. Like you look at something like Aesop rock, like, an amazing prolific one of the best rappers in the world and like he's got to go tour small cities to make it work for him yeah and and that to me is like is is a sign of somebody that like really loves their work and really wants to get it out right. there and i think to me that that's really important like i just did this show with my friend reed read more books uh in new orleans uh -huh. Um, and it was, it was at a little bigger, it was the biggest gallery in New Orleans. Yeah. Um, but it was really, it was a great experience because it was very much appreciated by the local crowd. And it was really important for everyone to come out and support Reed and be there for us. And it felt like a really genuine appreciation of it and the love yeah. of it. And everyone was there to come see me and read. They weren't there to be seen or to see who was there or to jockey for position right. in the next thing. It was just like a bunch of punks drinking beer in a gallery. And yeah. it just like felt very genuine. And I, and it goes back to some of the shows I did in 2007, 2008, and like those kind of beginning moments. And like, even in LA, like the stuff I did with a knot, like was really, you know, about, making art for the fun of it with somebody that really is in it because they want to do it and mm -hmm. it's important. And I think that I've seen in the six years I've been out here. I mean, I am not in the city. I'm way out in the woods, but mm -hmm. I can see that I can see the city from my house. Yeah. <laughs> on a clear day, <laughs> on a clear day. I yeah. get on the roof. I could look and I can see it. It's fucking terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, the, that I've watched, relationships that I thought would grow and become interesting, just become boring and sour mm -hmm. because somebody's somebody else saw a, the bright light of somebody else's, you know, stardom shining and they ran towards that. Yeah. I've seen the celebrity culture of it 
and it doesn't have anything to do with art and it's really sad and people backstab each other and don't look out for each other. And I come from a place where it's really like, you know, a handshake, you know, a man's word is a man's word. And, you know, it's about relationships. It's about fostering those relationships. It's not about what you're going to get out of it. And that, that those kind of people are also very much not, you know, that's, that's looked down upon that. Like if you're jockeying for position as a solo entity, you're, it's not the right place to be. Right. You know, this kind of attitude of like, it's all of us or none of us, I think is really important. Right. Um, I, this reminds me of, this reminds me of the Seattle Seahawks. <laughs> I've been giving this, this weird lecture, uh, often to like students or young people. And I always start the lecture with this YouTube video of the Seahawks doing their, we all, we got, we all, we need chant. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, this was from a couple years ago when the Seahawks were very much like underdogs. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the guys were kind of like, was Pete Carroll the coach? At the time? Yeah. Okay. Pete Carroll's the coach. And he like, you know, it was like when the um, beast mode was mm-hmm. like, didn't didn't have a lot of respect. There's a lot of people. Richard Sherman, Lynch, uh, Marshawn Lynch, Marshawn yeah, Lynch, Marshawn Lynch. Uh-huh. and you know Richard Sherman. You know, a lot of people were like not so sure about him. Russell Wilson is like the shortest quarterback ever. All these guys are like basically underdogs, second string, and they came together and you know their chant of "We all we got, we all we need" is this is really like it. It really kind of sums up the way I want to approach art and my practice and other artists and my relationship that like, we all need to work together to make this work. And I'm from, you know, I'm often an underdog and I'm often from the kind of outside and I don't have the right connects and I don't know the right people and I don't make the right art. I don't make paintings. I make weird junky crap <laughs> and you know, people can't, it's not easy if you have cats or kids to buy it and it yeah. doesn't, you know, it takes a, a knowledgeable person to, you know, understand it. And that's a weird, it's a weird thing. And Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's not consumable. And I think that those are my people, Mm -hmm. the people that are in it for that. And I think that kind of that attitude of like, we're all underdogs and we need to stick together is really important. And these, the celebrity culture that's sprung up in New York around some of these people, is just really disappointing because a lot of the work is crap. And everyone's looking at him. It's the emperor has no clothes yeah. phenomenon. It's yeah. like everyone's like, this guy's got great shows and is selling the shit out of work. Like, well, it must be great. I just don't get it. Yeah, you know, it's and a lot of groupthink. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's sure. and and I and I think it's 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 great. It's wonderful if that happens because there's sometimes those artists they make a bunch of money and they spread it out and it's great. But it's at the you know eventually the art is going to suffer. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, a dangerous place. Yeah. So when are you aiming to be back in Washington? A couple of weeks? We leave in like April 15th. And then I need to be out there on the 25th. I'm teaching at Pilchuck at the oh. Glass School out there oh, cool. in June. So the first three weeks of June. So we have basically the month of May to get across the country a couple of weeks in April. So Great. I've got a 6,000 mile trip planned. Um, road trip yeah it's sort of zigzagging around yeah it goes down we're gonna go down to florida see some family go to new orleans go see reed and all my family there and then 
cut through Texas, stop at Marfa because we're going to Texas. Mm-hmm. Go to Balmaria, go to the pools there, cut up through Grand Canyon, kind of weave back and forth through Utah, avoiding 15, get up to Yellowstone, and then cut across through Lolo Pass. And then hopefully if we have enough time, Washington side of the Columbia, go through Portland, Astoria, up around the peninsula, and then Port Townsend to Bellingham. Great. Um, So I think that'll be fucking amazing, man. It's like really important, I think, for all of us, for the family. And it just is so great to have a little pause because you know how it is with kids. Like you don't get a pause. Like six weeks to do something is insane. But the kids will be with you on the road trip. Yeah. Okay. And so, yeah, so to to have that moment of like be able to just take them and like we're going to do this thing because pretty soon like that's going to be way more difficult when they're in school that really matters and like you know that kind of stuff so i've been packing up and spending the last few weeks like getting our little 13 foot camper trailer ready Mm -hmm. so also deep in electricity like wiring i think that we all should have 12 volt and 110 systems in all of our house because 12 volt is so, it's so much easier to work with. Like these low voltage stuff, it's like crazy. And direct current is like so much more efficient. It's like, I feel like there was this movement for a while there. Like even like starting in the 20s, like there was like real drive to like get direct current and get battery systems. Because if you have the, the AC is really all about being able to run big power lines. Yeah. And DC doesn't do well over long distances, but it does way better in short distances. Yeah. And so there was like a movement that people were trying to get these efficient, like generator systems, battery systems. And we kind of all like, once the power just like came in and aligned, we all just like gave up or right. like, whatever. So you're trying to hook your, um, your trailer, your camera. The trailer is, is both 110. Okay. You know, I mean, it's, it's, so it's electrically efficient. It's totally silly because it's 13 feet. Like you can, no, it makes you sense because you're just describing stretch your arms these... at, like and reach across yeah. it. And I have like, I'm wiring in plugs every couple feet. I'm like wiring it like I'm wiring a house. This sounds like one of those like... things that, you got interested yeah. in it and now you're, yeah, you're I'm totally it out, I've so. got these like LED dimmer switches strips so that like everything is underlit with the perfect two twenty seven hundred Kelvin lighting. That's great. It's amazing. That's great. Can't wait to get Well Eli, I feel like this is a good place to probably wrap it up at the at the start of the next chapter with your road trip. Yes. Going yeah, going perfect. back west. But uh Thank I appreciate you, you taking the time to um have me up here in the midst of the packing and the craziness and um the uh, some great stuff you shared with us and maybe we can crack one of those peach beers open oh yes all right man thanks a lot (laughs) all right thanks joe and we've made it to the end A quick reminder that listeners can learn more about this project and the artists featured by visiting deepcolorpodcast.com. You can also find the series and subscribe in iTunes. Thank you for listening and check back soon for a new episode.